The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, everybody, and here we are at Our Wild World. I hope you're having a great Monday morning. It's uh, absolutely beautiful here uh, outside of Aspen, Colorado, with the fall leaves uh, on their last legs of bright gold and red, and we also had a little bit of snow this uh, weekend. So wherever you are, I hope you've been getting out and enjoying the uh, wilderness and wildness around uh, your area and home. So today uh, we're going to cover a little bit of um, what it takes to do the field work. One of the greatest joys of working in the field of conservation is getting to work with, know, and learn from amazing people who are out there every day dedicating their lives in the field for conservation. Living in remote parts of the world, and uh, the world I work in is Africa, and navigating through both social and political systems and uh, physically demanding situations and places. Uh, today we'll talk about some of the dedicated people that uh, I and my organization work with across sub-Saharan Africa, providing you the opportunity to learn about what they are doing on the ground, making conservation happen, and the creative solutions to some of the big issues we've been talking about, which usually end up with some tale of adventure along the way. In our previous shows, we've covered the wild idea that Wild Eyes is. Uh, I've provided some information about the underlying structure and background on what you can do and the challenge we all face in conserving our wild world and how the economics that make conservation work on the ground. I've mentioned that conservation is not a linear process, that it's more about thinking laterally and finding all the integrated aspects, aspects that must work together to make a project successful. Today, I'm going to try and put all of this together in a real-world sense and talk about some of the projects so you can see how it works and how it grows, not just linearly, but laterally. In 1993, before I started Wild Eyes, I met an incredible woman by the name of Lise Hansen. She's uh, in Namibia, and she was running an organization dedicated to cheetah conservation and big cat rescue. Uh, it was also, and that contained rehabilitation of uh, cheetahs, uh, rescue, release, and education and development. And so, what does that mean? So, in Namibia, you have livestock ranchers, and cheetah would come in and uh, take the calves, 
and that creates a big problem for ranchers. So what Lisa and her organization were doing were uh, working with the ranchers and helping them understand the importance that a cheetah plays in the landscape uh, despite the conflict with livestock and how ranchers could keep cheetah out of their livestock, out of their sheep, out of their cattle, out of their goats. So that entailed a lot of working directly with ranchers, providing solutions such as solar-operated uh, electric fencing that would keep cheetah out and livestock in. Because another thing you need to realize, in Africa, it, it, there's not often the fenced-in livestock like we have here in the U.S., uh, think more like our public and federal lands where livestock leases are provided to ranchers and livestock is grazed all season long. So in an area that is huge and a large habitat, you can't count on fences to keep predators out all the time. With small stock, uh, small livestock herds, that works. But with large grazing rights, uh, fencing just is not an appropriate or viable solution. So without a fence, you've got wildlife moving in. So Lisa and her organization would work a lot with ranchers, helping them to set up and provide uh, electric solar run electric fencing and education about what to do with cheetah. They also helped convince ranchers, rather than to shoot cheetah on site, which many of them do um, across sub-Saharan sub-Saharan Africa, not just Namibia, um, to box trap them. And uh, that requires a lot of information uh, just to be able to understand how to trap a cheetah. Cheetahs, um, they are basically a loner type of animal, solitary. Um, they'll form coalitions. Uh, young brothers will form up a coalition, which gives them a much better chance at survival. Females are pretty much loners, and they choose when and where they want to mate with a male. And they'll have uh, usually three to four cubs, and those cubs will stay with the mom for two to three years. So what did I just say there? We... What we need to understand is you've got an animal who's living in a rough area. There's not a lot of prey. Uh, there is desert. There is livestock. And now she, the female, has four little ones that she has to raise for two years. That means keep them fed, teach them how to be cheetahs, teach them what to avoid and how to be uh, get along with other cheetahs and avoid other cheetahs. So that's the mom cheetah's uh, work cut out for her. Now you've got the rancher's work cut out. He doesn't want a cheetah in his land, and uh, he's going to do everything he can to keep those cheetahs out. Part of that solution is to kill the cheetah. He's not looking whether to see it's a male or a female. He's just looking to see that it's a cheetah where it's not supposed to be. So in some instances, you end up with orphan cheetahs, three or four young cubs that no longer have a mother and no longer have anyone to help them survive. So the mortality rate on young cheetahs is very high. Um, even with mom alive, the mortality rate is high. It's a difficult two years to learn how to become an adult cheetah and function, despite all the... Uh, uh, conflicts and challenges that they will face from us, their human neighbors. So uh, with Lise, what she would end up doing would be working with the ranchers, uh, find out if they were willing to box trap the cheetah. And uh, to place a box trap, you need to find out where the cheetah are going to hang out and entice it into the trap, which is away from the livestock, but close enough that the cheetah's interested. And then you have to... Uh, 
call in when you've got a cheetah in the box trap so that it doesn't die out there of thirst or whatever. And then Lise and her crew would come and uh, it would be anywhere from a three to six hour drive to the rancher's place to collect the cheetah. She got very good at uh, darting them, which was a small blow dart and uh, sedate the cheetah to get it out of the trap and then bring it back to her organization's lodge and camp where they had uh, built many enclosures and uh, held the cheetah there for rescue. Um, if they were orphans, then they would have to come out and figure out how to feed them, how to treat them, and raise them until they were adults. And if at all possible, raise those cheetah cubs to adulthood that would be in the wild rather than in uh, captivity or an, an enclosure. So some of these rescues, when I say captivity, I'm not talking about a zoo. Uh, typically, or that these animals are on exhibit. They were in captivity in the sense that they were not allowed or could not or were not able to roam free. They were kept in very large enclosures in groups that got along with each other and were allowed to live their lives in security, not necessarily in freedom. So um, how I come into this picture is uh, my first trip to Africa way back when, uh, to Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Botswana. The very last stop on this tour that I went on was um, the place where Lisa worked in Namibia. Uh, it was called AfriCat Foundation. Yes, that foundation still does function. They've changed their mission a bit. They're no longer typically involved in wild release. They are in welfare and security and education. So they are still doing good work. Uh, Lisa is no longer with them. She's moved on, and I'll get to that later. So in 1993, I met Lisa, who was running the organization, and uh, she was telling all the visitors what the work involved. And that was just the first day upon the first couple of hours of arriving there. We were um, loaded into the vehicles and taken around and shown the enclosures. And in the back of the vehicle, they had these huge buckets of meat and bones and animals that were not cows, but other wildlife that was either roadkill or um, ranchers had donated and uh, this meat was processed into big pieces, and then the uh, crew would throw the meat into the uh, the enclosures, and you'd see all the cheetahs coming up. And there's Lisa. She's going, here, kitty, 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 just like you would with your uh, domestic cats. And it was an amazing, amazing sight to see these animals um, come to the fence, take their meat, run off, and disappear and into the into the brush. So um, then we come back to the lodge and we're having lunch and typically after lunch you have a little bit of a siesta and you go take a nap and you come back out for afternoon tea before you do some afternoon activities or a lecture or um, some other sort of thing, meeting and talking with your, your fellow guests. So we're sitting there at afternoon tea and I feel a bump against my leg and I have cats and I have dogs at home and I'm thinking in my mind, well, it's just my pet and then I think quickly it's like wait a minute wait a minute I'm not at home what is that bumping against my leg and you look down and you see a cheetah standing there golden coated black spotted flat long legged dog like cat sitting next to you purring what do you do you've only seen this animal at a distance and now there it is right next to you you soak up just being in the presence and the visuals of this 
this majestic, stunning animal. And uh, what do you do? Uh, you stare. The next thing you do is you listen to the person who's sitting there telling you how to behave and how to be prepared in front of a cheetah. Okay, so these were wild cheetah. Uh, they were uh, habituated. They were tamed somewhat to be with people. And these two particular cheetah were uh, the ambassadors for the lodge there to help people engage and understand what cheetah conservation was all about. And let me tell you, there is uh, rarely a better opportunity than to sit there with the animal that you're learning about, to have a hands-on experience, to be able to touch this animal and let it be in your space and you be in its space, um, all with with um, approval and with uh, the ability of the, the cat saying, yes, you can be here next to me. Yes, you can touch me. So we went about listening to Lisa and uh, how to be around these cheetah. And, uh, of course, we got our photo opportunities with the cats and uh, walk into your room. And the cheetahs just were able to uh, roam around the camp. So you got an opportunity to sit there and learn and be with a cat. And uh, to this day, 20 years later, I still work with Lise Hansen. We still fund uh, her current work. She left Africat several years ago and is now doing hyena, spotted hyena conservation in the Caprivi Strip area of Namibia, uh, working with that most uh, malaligned animal, the hyena, which many people just love to hate. Uh, people think they're an awful, scary, snake-like being, and they're not. If you get the opportunity to be next to a hyena, just like I was with a cheetah, you learn an awful lot about that animal. So now we're going to head into the break, and I'm going to come back with another little story, and I'll see you soon. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live The leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com 
listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Hi there, and we're back. And I was telling you about my first experience with facing a wild, uh, somewhat tame wild cheetah at uh, a friend of mine who continues to be a really good friend, Lisa Hansen in Namibia, and uh, how that started me on my journey and made me realize that uh, a woman could do this kind of work. Lisa is so incredible. She's powerful. She's gorgeous. She's fabulous. You can find out more about Lisa on our website at www.wildeyes.org and her Caprivi uh, Spotted Hyena Project and learn what it takes to um, take a project from an idea into a, from a passion into an idea into a functioning project and how it works across all avenues and areas of uh, conservation that we've been talking about. The economics of conservation, dealing with poverty, dealing with disease, dealing with wild ideas of how you can help and how you can get involved and uh, work with incredible people. That's how I started. Um, I had a passion. I loved wildlife. It does count to what to love wildlife, but wildlife needs more uh, to be protected, to be uh saved to continue to exist on the planet with us so we can get involved and that's what I chose to do so a few years after meeting uh, Lise I realized this is something I could do this is something I wanted to do and something I felt I had to do uh, to be able to address conservation issues of face-to-face hands-on so I started Wild Eyes Foundation and shortly thereafter was introduced to uh, to Simon Trevor. Uh, you may not know the name right off the bat, but he was the director of cinematography for the film Gorillas in the Mist, uh, The Color Purple, and several more. And he had gone from making commercial film into making conservation film rather than the for-profit arena. His heart laid in uh, bringing awareness to wildlife and conservation issues. So he contacted me as a result of seeing some of the work that we did and visiting our website and uh, requesting funding to support the making of a film about water in Tanzania and the necessity and the import of a particular river there called the Ruaha and how it was drying up. So we funded that film, and uh, after watching another film of his, which was called Elephants, Wanted, Dead or Alive, which was about um, the ivory trade and helping to educate Africans about the importance of elephants in their economy, in their lives, in their country, and in their landscape. 
So I began working with people who were like-minded as, as, as me and wanted to get involved. But here I was in the U.S. and very far from African wildlife. So I not only, not only needed a platform to stay involved, but I needed a way to stay involved and a way to help and put my uh, passion and my love into action to take what I was seeing when I would go over there on, let's say, a safari or a tour and do something about it. And you can do that too. All you have to do is take that step and just get involved. Say, this is something I care about and this is something I want to protect and what can I do? So over the past uh, few weeks, I've been helping to give some information of how you can do these things and what it involves. So from meeting Simon Trevor, he introduced me to another young man by the name of Danny Woodley and his wife, Nana. Danny at the time was the senior warden of Savo National Park, which is in the southern part of Kenya. And he was the uh, senior warden at the northern area headquarters, way up in Athumba, way far away from anywhere else in southern Kenya. And uh, they needed help uh, in terms of general support. Danny was a, an officer and the warden of the Kenya Wildlife Service. So um, I enjoyed talking to them. I understood their need. They needed further support so that Danny could simply continue to do the work uh, that he was uh, doing and building up uh, Savo National Park. There's a lot of information out, out there about Savo. It is one of the largest ecosystems, uh, wild, pristine ecosystems left in East Africa. It is part of the larger ecosystem of the Chilulu Hills and heads down, <coughs> excuse me, into the um, Maasai Steppe in northern Kenya and is on the border with Mukamazi National Park across the border uh, in Tanzania. So, Hopefully what I'm giving you here is an idea of how large these areas are, how dedicated the people are that are working there, the kind of money it takes to make a project function, the strategy and planning it takes, and the lateral thinking and who you have to work with and be involved with and have relationships with to make something happen on the ground. So it's the time Danny was the, the, nor the warden up in the north. They were having a lot of dif difficulty with poaching. The Somali bandits were coming in. There was a lot of human uh, population increase around the park, putting pressure on the park borders, and a lot of livestock coming in. Previously in the 60s and 70s and 80s, elephants had been highly poached out uh, for the commercial ivory trade. So that brings us to another point. Here's this magnificent six-ton animal that we are killing off for its teeth. Uh, the tusks are actually just two teeth that uh, grow outside the body. Elephants live about 60, 65 to 70 years. They have highly emotional lives. They're as sentient and uh, as sentient as we are. Their emotional lives are as complicated and uh, in-depth as ours. They communicate with each other uh, in ways we still don't understand. They communicate not only vocally with the trumpet that we hear and their sounds and gives warnings, but they communicate uh, through something called infrasound, which is a low, deep sound wave that travels through the ground. Elephants can communicate up to 50 to 100 miles away with another family and coordinate their efforts to meet up at a particular place. 
So Danny was having a lot of difficulty dealing with poachers, uh, not only with elephants, but also with rhino and uh, with the game species that were uh, living in the park, the protected area. Uh, last uh, couple weeks ago, I think I spoke about buffer zones. So around every national park, there is a buffer zone which allows for some human utilization and wildlife utilization. Wildlife doesn't live just inside a park. It moves, it migrates. But inside the park is protected, and so wildlife will go there. People understand that. So they will go inside the park to uh, lay snare lines to poach for bush meat and to bring their cattle in to graze. So, uh, national parks are usually reservoir areas for either a dry season or a wet season holdover. It's a permanent source of food and uh, uh, population, viable numbers for reproduction. So that's why they're important. It's not a um, willy-nilly setting aside of land just because. So the making of a national park or a reserve is uh, is a government-oriented uh, policy that sets aside certain land for the protection of wildlife with a buffer zone where wildlife and people can work together, and it's usually near an area where people are are beginning to populate on a on a on a heavier side. So Danny was faced with a lot of challenges between livestock poaching. Uh, weapons coming in from uh, bandits and poachers and also elephant deaths and rhino deaths and just the loss, the humongous loss of wildlife happening in this area. And it was his job to put it all together and find a way to protect it and create projects that benefited not only the local people, such as schools or building fences where need be to keep wildlife, even baboons, out of the agriculture to um, help dissipate the problem animal uh, issues that were going on, such as when an elephant comes in and destroys uh, a villager's crop or kills a person. These are big issues. This is the lateral thinking that I'm trying to help you understand in terms of how conservation works. It uh, doesn't just work to say, oh, okay, I love cheetahs. I'm going to go start an organization and protect cheetahs. You have to do a lot of groundwork. You have to be prepared. You have to be willing to create relationships with people. That's what I've always been saying. Conservation, wildlife conservation is about people. Wildlife needs us to help it. It doesn't have a voice. It doesn't have a pocket. It can't hold money. It just needs space and needs food to do what it does, which is exist, reproduce, and provide a certain psychological uh, joy for us people. Where would we be if we didn't have wildlife? I'd like you to think about that for a minute. Where would you be if you could never see that golden amber-eyed cheetah? Where would you be if you could never see an elephant? People go to Africa on safari to see the wildlife that lives only in Africa. Yes, we have some in zoos, but is that where you want to see a lion, a cheetah, and an elephant in a zoo? Trust me, the animals in the zoo, unless they have a whole lot of space to run and can live their lives as they normally do in the wild, is not the same thing as seeing a wild animal doing what it does and living its life. 
So back to Danny. I met up with Danny uh, in Voy Wildlife Lodge in uh, just outside of Savo National Park in Kenya uh, to discuss the grant and uh, how we were going to work out the terms and where the funding was going to go and the kinds of projects Danny needed to accomplish and whether they would be short-term or long-term and how we would make this function to get the best benefit out of the work and the limited funding that we had. So I had a great time meeting Danny, uh, sitting there in the Voya Wildlife Lodge, looking out at the waterhole and seeing elephants playing. And he started telling me a story about a little baby leopard that his rangers found orphaned uh, near a place called uh, Matito Day. So this little leopard was less than three weeks old, and uh, they were trying to figure out how and what to do with this little leopard, whether they were going to turn it over to the Nairobi Orphanage, which is the holding place for all wildlife and orphans or injured wildlife in Kenya, where it may it, where it would most likely survive, may survive, but it would probably not have the opportunity to go back in the wild. So Danny proceeded to... Um, he and Nana, his wife, proceeded to find a way to raise and release this leopard uh, back into the wild. So he said, as long as I was in Salvo, why don't I come on up to Athumba, which was a good day and a half drive over rough road, uh, up to the Athumba headquarters there and meet this little leopard. So that's all it took for me. Um, I was on board with that immediately, went around changing my plans. Uh, me and my driver, we headed up to Ithumba and spent the next couple of nights up at the headquarters with Danny, Senior Warden of Kenya Wildlife Service, and Nana Woodley. And I began to learn a whole lot more about what it takes uh, on a government scale to make wildlife conservation happen. The challenges between working with people who have certain needs uh, and working with wildlife who have a very different set of needs. Uh, even though they're inextricably linked because they are sharing the same resources, they're sharing the same land, um, but they have different objectives. Wildlife just wants to get along, go along, survive, and and uh, reproduce, and uh, people need to make a living. So we'll get a little bit back more into that as soon as we come back from another break. I'll see you soon. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. 
Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Hi there, and we're back. We were with Danny Woodley and his wife, Nana Woodley, in Savo National Park, the northern area of the headquarters called Ithumba, and I was meeting a two-month-old, not even a two-month-old, I'd say about a six-week, six-week-old baby leopard named Matito. And uh, so Danny led me into their bedroom where they were keeping this little leopard and uh, trying to raise it. But at this point, it was just a little rambunctious uh, ball of fur with sharp teeth and claws. All the weapons it was going to need to get along for a life in the wild in about the size of a two-month-old house cat with very different inst- instincts. Uh well, the same instincts, but I'd say a little bit more tuned into the world of what those instincts meant to it. It would climb all over the mozzie nets. It would shred the mozzie nets. It would hide in the drawers. It would uh, spit, hiss, and claw when they tried to get it out. Feeding it was a challenge because it was not able to eat meat yet. So they had to come up with um, a diet, uh, a syringe and liquid diet, because typically the leopard would still be nursing with its mom, and it would stay with its mom for two years to learn how to be a leopard, just the way a cheetah would stay with its mom for two years to learn how to be a cheetah to learn how to hunt, to learn how to hide, to learn how to disguise itself, to learn how to stalk. So now we had two people that were performing the task of being a leopard mother to a baby leopard to release it back in the wild so it would have a chance at survival in its its own habitat. So Danny and Nana very successfully uh, pulled this off, but once again, it required a lot of help. It required help from the Kenya Wildlife Service. It required funding to be able to build a BOMA, to, uh, which is a, a little housing area, a corral type of thing, to hold the leopard once it got uh, big enough to be out of the house because of the kind of damage it would just was inherently doing inside the house and uh It needed a keeper, someone who could spend 24-7 with this leopard and be its parent and teach it and feed it and walk it and let it get outside and outside of its fenced area. And that requires funding. It requires a lot of cooperation, a lot of skill, a lot of planning, and a lot of strategy. So once again, we've brought it right back down to what makes conservation happen on the ground. Uh, imagine watching this little ball of fur with its long little guard hairs out, just looking like a little ball of fuzz, blue eyes, its eyes hadn't even turned yet, trying to learn how to be what it's going to be, a leopard, uh, and a leopard living wild. So Danny and Nana spent two years being the parent of this leopard, teaching it how to be safe, teaching it how to hunt, 
uh, teaching it its, uh, its area, its, its home, taking it farther and farther every day, uh, then getting to the point where they could leave the Boma gate unlocked and let the leopard go out and make its way, but still be able to come back to a place of safety that it knew, just like coming back to mom. So today that leopard is running wild. He is free. And he's doing well. And uh, a lot of people say, well, do you still see Matito? And it's like, no, I don't. And that's the whole point. This leopard was raised to be wild. He was not raised as a pet. He was not raised in captivity. He was raised to live the life of a leopard and be a leopard. And that's what he's doing. And that is a success story of Wild Eyes funding and Wild Eyes uh, conservation and the dedication of people such as Danny and Nana. And their colleagues and the people they worked with to learn how to raise a leopard, one of their friends was a man by the name of Tony Fitzjohn. And Tony Fitzjohn uh, was the uh, protege of George Adamson. I don't know about all of you out there, but I grew up with the movie Born Free and Elsa the Lion and Living Free. And George and Joy Adamson were the two people responsible for bringing those lions of the movie Born Free back into the wild. George Adamson was uh, once again a warden in Kenya back in those days. I'm talking about the 50s and the 60s uh, when Kenya had a very different political arrangement than it does now. And But at the same time, it realized very much that its wildlife was unique and that it existed nowhere else and did need protection. During the 50s, 60s, and 70s, poaching was... Uh, out of hand, it, uh, the rhinos were disappearing left and right. Elephants were uh, being poached by the the thousands. There was a drought that was killing off not only the megafauna, elephants uh, and rhino, but killing everything else that depended on the water. So there was a lot going on during these times, and the senior wardens and the wardens of Kenya's national parks had many challenges to face, and George Adamson was one such incredible man. And during the making of the movie of Born Free, they brought in captive lions from elsewhere, lions that could be actors so that uh, the movie could be carried out and the plot gone through, but how many people often think about the lion or the animal actors? Uh, and their lives in captivity. So George had decided he wanted to take these lions because once they had gotten back into Africa and were doing a lot of the wild work that they needed to do to be portrayed as wild lions in Africa in the film, what were they going to do with these lions once the film was done? They could not be returned to captivity. Uh, the country would not permit it. They couldn't be taken out and brought back in because of so many issues, quarantine, disease, uh, all the things. If you've ever tried to take your pet elsewhere in the world, you might have an understanding of what it takes to travel with an animal. So a lion is not your family dog and it's not your family cat. So George wanted to bring these animals back into the wild, which, which began his project of returning, rescuing and uh, releasing and rehabilitating full-grown lions or young lions to full-grown lions back into the wild. And that was his project up outside of Kora National Park in uh, Kenya, northern Kenya, um, quite a distance, about a three- to five-day drive from Savo National Park. And uh, this young man, Tony Fitzjohn, wandered in one day and uh, decided and found a job as George's assistant. 
Tony was a wild young Englishman uh, looking for something to do. And George had these lions. And these lions somewhat tamed Tony. And Tony worked with these lions. So between the lions and Tony, they both found their, their meaning in life. And uh, some of you may have heard of the YouTube sensation Christian the Lion that was purchased out of a, a, a British uh, department store by two young men and raised in captivity in their basement in in uh, uh, Piccadilly or Soho, or not Soho, I, I don't remember, Kingston, King Street or something like that in London. I'm sorry, I don't remember at the moment. And uh, when it got to be about six to eight months old, they realized this lion could not continue living in a furniture store, and they went about finding a way that it could be brought back to Kenya. They met Will Travers, who was the actor who played uh, George Adamson in the film Born Free, and uh, Virginia McKenna, who played Joy Adamson. And they contacted George Adamson and asked if it was possible to bring this British lion from uh, a department store back to Kenya, up to uh, Camp Simba in Cora, and be rehabilitated and released into the wild. It took a year to get that uh, planning together to get the Kenyan government and the Kenyan Wildlife Service to approve such a thing and they ended up bringing Christian back to Kenya and uh, Tony and Christian grew up together so to speak and uh, it was Tony who did the work in rehabilitating Christian and getting him back into the wild. You can go on to YouTube and find the Christian the Lion videos and see that story. It is an incredibly touching story. The Lion did remember uh, a year later his original owners, Ace and John. And uh, the reunion is what is uh, a fabulous thing to see on that little video. So... Um, where I was going with this was a couple years after meeting Danny, who uh, worked with Tony, and because Tony had a lot of experience raising lions, and by this time Tony was in Tanzania. Uh, George Adamson was killed in the early 70s. Uh, as I was saying, Kenya was a bad time. Kenya was having a hard time in terms of wildlife and politics and poaching and international pressure. So Tony was... Um, asked to help revitalize a national uh, a reserve in Tanzania called Mukamazi. So he went there, and he spent uh, about 22 years um, uh, making Mukamazi uh, up to a standard and building a rhino sanctuary there, and, um, and also restarting uh, George's lion work back up in Cora. So Wild Eyes has helped fund both the Rhino Sanctuary in Mukamazi and we provided critical targeted funding to help rehabilitate the George Adamson's old camp. So um, Tony Fitzjohn contacted me um, because of Danny Woodley and uh, we started talking about what we could do there and as a result that's how Wild Eyes got involved with both Mukamazi uh, the Rhino Sanctuary and uh, rehabilitating Cora back to uh, it, where it can hold lions so now after 25 years Cora, Camp Yasimba George's old camp finally has a lion at last has a lion and that lion is Mugi who was an orphan rescued from from, uh, another place a little farther south in Samburu. He was stranded on an island during floods. So people picked him up and they realized uh, his mom was not going to come back, but that also that they were not capable of providing the structure that 
is required to raise an orphan lion. So Tony went and picked up uh, Mugi, and Mugi is now at Camp Yasimba, uh, working with Tony's uh, sort of young clone, it's similar to who he is these days, Jamie. And you can find out more about Mugi on our website at www.wildeyes.org and look up uh, Tony Fitzjohn and uh, read more about the project in Mugi. You can follow us on Facebook and uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and you can call in and ask me questions. That call in number is 866-472-5788. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear if you've had experiences in in, in Africa or with wildlife, wildlife in your backyard, at home, or wherever you've been on the planet. Um, part of uh, the, what the show in Our Wild World about, is about is sharing our experiences and getting people engaged. So this is a place where you can share your experience. Uh, we learn from some experts, talk with some experts, and we'd like to be able to help you find a way to get involved and fulfill your passion, whether it be African wildlife or North American wildlife or something else entirely. Uh, just getting involved and taking a step and making a place that we're all happy to live in as we move forward. Um, I think we're going to be heading into a little break here and I'll come back with uh, a few more stories uh, about lions. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Lions. I'm sure we've all seen a lion, whether it's on TV, in the zoo, on a wildlife animal show. We all know what a lion is. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible animal. It's been described as the king of the jungle. Uh, the Lion King, Simba, which is the Swahili word for lion. Who doesn't know what a lion is? I can't imagine there's there'd be anybody uh, that's listening right now that doesn't know what a lion is. But surprisingly enough, a lot of kids in Africa, where lions are native, have never seen a lion or have only... Uh, the understanding that a lion is bad, it is conflict, it eats their livestock, it's scary. Um, uh, oftentimes, the uh, local African communities that live around national parks rarely get in to see the national park, whether it be because of the fees and poverty or there's just no engagement with it. So a lot of what the work that Wild Eyes does and our grantees and why we fund these projects is to help the local people get a better understanding and a benefit, an economic benefit, a security benefit uh, from the work that's going on in national parks, from the work that's going on in wildlife conservation. If we can't help uh, engage and benefit the people who must live in concert or conflict with this wildlife, then we conservationists are not doing a very good job. So the goal is to, once again, conservation is about people, to find ways to help people live with wildlife. And animals like lions, leopards, and cheetah have an inherent uh, conflict when you are a livestock uh, grower or elephants if you're an agriculturalist. Agriculturalist. So we have to help find ways to mitigate the conflicts with between livestock, people, and wildlife. Um, so with most of the prey species, it's not too much of a problem because they are, are grass eaters. They're browsers. They do come in and move through. Uh, your village and your crops, but they're not that much of a danger as compared to, let's say, a baboon or the carnivores who, um, or an omnivores who eat meat and other, uh, product, uh, products similar to our bears. So a lot of the work that we do is mitigating this. So with Danny Woodley and with Tony Fitzjohn, what Wild Eye stepped in and did was provide critical funding to help build fences that would separate uh, people's agriculture from the pesty and pesky wildlife from their perspective that would continually come in and rob them of their livelihood. So just loving animals, as we've talked about before, doesn't solve the problem. Uh, loving animals helps provide the base to get involved, but you need to look at the other side of what the problem is that animals are doing to people. And the problem of what people are doing to animals. We've talked about poaching, we've talked about bushmeat, and that's the um, pressure that people are putting onto animals, but the other side of the coin is just as valid, the pressure that wildlife puts on people. 
especially in a political situation where the wildlife is not necessarily yours to do with what you will, but it's on your land and interrupting your livelihood and life way. So a lot of the work that we do is finding solutions between people and wildlife to find a way to help live together. Um, so one of these big predators, carnivores, apex predators, is lions. Um, as we started, we've all seen a lion. Um, hopefully you'll all get an opportunity to see one in the wild someday. My first experience close up with a lion was in Namibia at, with Lise Hansen. There was a lion there at her rehab center. Plus seeing it on safari, uh, wild and watching the cubs learn to hunt and play and to see what lions do. Uh, lions have, they're, they're a fascinating cat. Um, at first I wasn't, in love with lions the way I have always been in love with, let's say, leopards and cheetahs. But over the years, 20 years, I have learned that lions are facing some of the most difficult problems uh, today on our planet, similar to what, let's say, polar bears are facing. But polar bears don't have to interface with people the way lions do. So between Tony Fitzjohn and George Adamson and the lion work they were doing and rehabilitating Campy Asimba at Kora National Park in Kenya to the point where it can hold and rehabilitate a young lion. We're at the point where we're looking, Tony is looking to get four more lions from the Kenya Wildlife Service Nairobi Orphanage to create a pride similar to what George was doing, carrying on George's work to uh, release these lions back into the wild. Well, there's a very difficult problem when you're talking about introducing or releasing an apex predator such as a lion into a habitat where there's people and where there maybe are no lions. Uh, we have to think about the conflict that's going to come up between people, uh, the possible conflict of lions that know people, were raised by people, and now are free to roam. Um, so there's a lot of issues to think about when you're talking about integrating predators into a landscape so that everyone is safe, that the people are safe from the lion and the lion has is safe from the people. It's a lot of work. It takes uh, a lot of strategy and a lot of planning. And uh, that's what Wild Eyes helps fund our projects to do, to, to work all that out. So now we're working back at Cora. We have some lions coming in. I hope to be going in December to, to see the new lions that are coming in. These lions will have to stay at Cora for approximately a year to two as they grow up and learn how to be lions. Same uh, sort of scenario as Matito the leopard. They will be kept in a protected uh, boma enclosure. They will be fed wild meat. They will be taught how to stalk. They will be allowed and taken out of the boma and go for walks so that they can learn their habitat and their area and then eventually learn to be wild lions. So this is a really big project. It's very exciting. And uh, some of the other projects that we're working on is how to manage that conflict of wild lions and people. So please visit our website 
at www.wildeyes.org to learn more about what we're doing in our sub-Saharan lion conservation. One of those projects is uh, Conditioned Taste Aversion, which I talked about a bit before. And uh, it's conditioning lions against eating beef. And it is possible. It's a fascinating project. Uh, we are working on a, something similar with mountain lions here in the U.S., and uh, also working on something similar up in Zimbabwe and hopefully over in Mozambique. So this is quite a project. To We started working with um, captive lions, and now we're moving into wild trials in Botswana. So this is very exciting. And once again, as I've said, it's about working laterally, thinking ahead, planning, and being prepared. And that all takes funding, and it takes a lot of dedicated people who have turned their love of wildlife into taking action on behalf of wildlife. Um, we're all familiar with uh, the wildlife we see in the zoos and captive breeding, and we need to think about, is this where we want our wildlife to go? Is this where we want to be able to see uh, the animals that live on our planet, free and wild. Do we want to see them only in captivity? Uh, 30 years ago, there were 400,000 lions across Africa. Today, there are less than 23,000 lions, free-ranging, wild. So this is something to think about. Where do you want to see a lion? This gorgeous animal with uh, the big, huge mane. Who hasn't seen a lion? Fabulous animal and... Uh, do we want to see them in the wild? Do you want to go to Africa one day and be out there and see these animals doing what they do to survive and get along? Uh, so in the end, I simply ask you to look around at our wild world. Uh, find your passion and get involved. There's so much that we can do. There's so much out there. There's so many dedicated people. And uh, to find a way to make choices to live with our wildlife as we move in and set up shop in their spaces and make choices in living with us. Wildlife has chosen to live with us. We need to choose to live with wildlife. So I'd like you to join me again next week when I will have a special guest, um, guests, excuse me, from one of our projects in Botswana, uh, Dr. Kathy Alexander and her husband Mark Vanderwall, who run the Caracal Biodiversity Project in Botswana. So I look forward to seeing you then. Uh, in the meantime, you can email uh, with questions and we'll get to those on the next show. And I thank you for tuning in to Our Wild World. And why don't you step out and go see some of your wild world. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.